This episode of Backtalk is brought to you by longtime bitch media sponsor Gladrags, who bring you all the essentials for a safe, sustainable period. Learn about cloth pads and menstrual cups when you sign up for their newsletter at gladrags.com and be entered to win a mini cloth pad starter set. Make sure you tell them Backtalk sent you. Hi, and welcome to Backtalk. This show is a conversation between two feminists who care about pop culture. I'm Amy Lam, the associate editor at Bitch, and I've been procrastinating on editing an interview I did with an artist named Hyun Park. And I'm Sarah Merck. I'm the online editor at Bitch, which means I've been spending all week reading Twitter 24 hours a day, and I feel like my eyeballs are going to dry up and fall out of my head. No. <laughs> it's a rough week. <laughs> well, uh, each week on the show, we talk about two pieces of current pop culture that we think are interesting. Plus, we highlight one thing we read, one thing we saw, and one thing we heard. Um, well, we start off the show by talking about our own personal favorite thing from pop culture this week. Um, I can start. Go uh, for it. So my thing... I was trying to really think about what I was really into this week in terms of pop culture. And I realized that because um, this past Sunday was Father's Day and um, that there's a huge dearth or actually not even a dearth. It's just completely missing market of like um, Father's Day's or Mother's Day's card for uh, immigrant parents. Because I realized that there are no cards that are like culturally appropriate for immigrant parents because there's like maybe a language barrier like in case of my dad um and they don't say the things that i want them to say <laughs> because like i feel like a lot of the the greeting cards that are out there now are really sappy and um really geared towards like this american stereotype of what like mostly a white dad is you know like they grill and drink beer and like watch sports which like my dad doesn't do any of those things really uh so i was just thinking that like well, actually, you suggested that I should start a, <laughs> a greeting card line for um, immigrant parents. And, you know, like the one for my dad could be like, thanks for taking me to McDonald's when I was a kid, even though you hated the food. <laughs> <laughs> Where Where's your dad from? Uh, my from? parents are both from Vietnam, but um, we're ethnically Chinese. So there's like a weird mix there. Um, and they're refugee immigrants. So it's like these cards just aren't. And, you know, within... I think our culture and maybe like within specifically our family, like we don't really do mushy stuff. Mm-hmm. So to get a car that's just being like, oh, it's been such a, you know, a lovely, you know, experience being your daughter. And for all the wisdom you've imparted, I mean, we don't say these things to each other. Um, so it's <laughs> better to be like, you know, um, thanks for, uh, you know, taking me to school every day so I don't have to walk. Those are the little things that are like really important and that I understood it was how my parents showed love to me without having to say I love you. So do you make your own Father's Day card? No? I kind of hack existing cards. Um, so so you would buy a card that was a joke about buying a tie and doing a barbecue and then you'd try and translate it into like, here's why it's funny in Chinese. Right. Or I would be like, this makes no sense to you, but here, I, mean, I got you a card. <laughs> <laughs> so that's my thing this week. <laughs> I think it's... I think it's a million dollar idea. Thanks. Maybe not a million dollars. Maybe like a... A few hundred. A hundred thousand dollar idea. <laughs> no, a few hundred thousand okay. dollar idea. Yeah. Um, my favorite personal thing from pop culture this week is that today is the birthday of Octavia Butler. Octavia Butler, brilliant sci-fi author. I am still surprised by how many people don't know who Octavia Butler is. So I feel like it is my duty in the world to tell everybody Octavia Butler is amazing. Um, 
And why I love her, her books are just like really smart, interesting uh, sort of critiques of our modern society. But they're also like super engaging and juicy and fun to read. And so it's a good mix of like, wow, this says a lot about society and race and gender, but also like, I want to find out what happens and like, who's going to die. So I love her work. Can't recommend it highly enough. Um, Plus it's her birthday. Go read her. We did want to talk a little bit, little bit about the new, there was like really big news about uh, two weeks, a week and a half ago with Rachel Dolezal. Um, Rachel Dolezal. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like tired. (laughs) I'm tired of even hearing her name. Yeah. And uh, we're, I mean, we're pretty much burnt out uh, about the coverage on her and it's, it's ridiculous. And so, but we did want to highlight that, you know, her story is important and because we're talking about it. Right. I think that I think that the case of Rachel Dolezal, who if you somehow have been like living under a rock, is um, a woman in Spokane who was uh, who was representing herself as being African-American for about 10 years. And through a weird legal family battle, her parents revealed that actually she was she was raised as like a white blonde woman and has been representing herself this way for about a decade. Her white parents outed her. Right. Her white parents outed her. And this became a huge national story in the past week. Um And I think it does bring up some, it has sparked some interesting conversations about race and representation. And there's been roughly one million think pieces written about it. Um, But it's also a lot of the coverage has just sort of felt like tabloid rubbernecking, honestly. Like, look at this weirdo. We talked to Tammy Winfrey Harris, who's a longtime bitch contributor. Um, and she wrote an op-ed for the New York Times, and the op-ed was called Black Like Who, Rachel Dolezal's Harmful Masquerade. And we asked her to read a short excerpt from the end of her piece, and here it is. In the days since this story broke, many people have been quick to point out that race is merely a social construct, as if that fact changes the very real impact of race on the lives of minorities. The persistence of systemic racism means there are penalties for blackness in America. Black women, real ones, live at the nexus of that oppression and enduring sexism. The gender pay gap is steeper for them. They are more likely than their white counterparts to live in poverty, to be victims of domestic homicide and sexual assault. If Taisha Miller and Rakia Boyd Black women who were victims of extrajudicial violence had been able to slide into whiteness just for a moment. They might still be alive. Perplexingly, Ms. Dolezal told Matt Lauer that her decision to identify as black was a matter of survival. That is rich indeed. But racial oppression is not as easy to shrug off as racial advantage. This is partly because America has spent centuries ensuring that certain people can never be white. Being able to shift one's race is a privilege. Ms. Dolezal's masquerade illustrates that however much she may empathize with African Americans, she is not one. Because black people in America cannot shed their race. We cannot proclaim the black race a nebulous concept while strictly policing whiteness and the privileges of that identity. I will accept Ms. Dolezal as black like me only when society can accept me as white like her. 
that editorial was so great. When when I read it in the New York Times, I was just like, that is what I'm so glad that Tammy said that and that that's what came through in this conversation. That's a really important conversation to be having. Right. Definitely read the whole thing because she touches on some really good points. Um, but in the excerpt, she talks about how in only talking about Dolezal's experience or focusing on her experiences, we're not we're shifting focus away from talking about the real lived experiences of black women. And so we're going to take this time now to talk about stories that happened during that week that were pushed away because people were too busy talking about. Right. Dolezal. So because there was such a media frenzy around Rachel Dolezal, the like the more significant news that happened last week that actually was about the lives of black women got pushed under the rug or wasn't covered as much as it would have been in a week that didn't have Rachel Dolezal on it. So you had a couple stories that you wanted to point out that you thought were important and didn't get enough coverage last week. Yes. So the first one is about Arnisha Bowers. Um, she she was a 16-year-old girl in Baltimore, and um, she died in a really horrific way um, at her grandmother's house. She was assaulted and then burned alive, and then they set her oh. house on fire. Yeah, it was awful. And that barely got on the radar of any real, like, news coverage. Um and she was a young black girl. And and then there's also the case of, so there, you know, a few weeks before there was the um, pool party incident in uh, McKinney, Texas, yeah, mm-hmm. where the 14-year-old girl, um, where a police officer used excessive force on a 14-year-old black girl. And then also drew his gun on a couple of other black teens. So that happened. And... And then just last week, there was another pool incident where a black family was at a pool and something happened where the pool attendant had to call call in law enforcement. And um, they used excessive force in, in arresting the family. Um, and then there's video of an officer, um, you know, strong arming a 12 year old girl and pretty much like slamming her into his cop car. And there's video of this. Jeez. Yeah. And so these are two stories about young black girls. And we just weren't barely hearing about them. You know, I mean, like, I'm just trying to even think if this happened to, like, young white women, what would, like, the amount of coverage that it would have received. But instead of talking about um, Arnisha Bowers or the incident in Fairfield, Ohio, that's the one where the 12-year-old girl was slammed against the cop car, we, I mean, the news coverage was only about Rachel Dolezal in terms of, like, race coverage about black women or black girls. It was just so disheartening to see how that played out. Mm -hmm. Oh, and I did want to bring up that um, one of the things in terms of the coverage about Rachel Dolezal is that we all know her name, right? Um, But we don't know the names of of the women who started uh, the Black Lives Matter movement. You mean um, th- th- they're not getting enough attention? Like, right. Like that Rachel Dolezal is now a national name that everybody knows. But what's lesser known is actual people who are doing activist work that should be recognized as, as being nationally important. Right. So like Alicia Garza, Patrice Collars, and Opal Tometi, they're the three women who started the Black Lives Matter movement. And I think that we need to have people like that on the tips of our tongues. And when we're talking about race in America and especially... Um, you know, injustices that may be, that are put upon black women in America. So those should be the names that we know. Yes. Can we like mind erase? Like, can we get uh, Will Smith up in here with his like men in black mind eraser and just forget about Dolezal, period? Like if we never speak her name again, I would be stoked. Oh God. What were the three names we should know again of the Black Lives Matter founders? 
um, Alicia Garza, Patrice Collars, and Opal Tometi. I think that there was some good coverage last week, actually, of people trying to redirect attention from Rachel Dolezal. There was a hashtag on Twitter called Say Her Name, and there was a couple articles were published that were like, hey, here's the stories we should be talking about this week. Um, and so I feel like during the whole time of the frenzy, there was a couple, there was, you know, some people who were trying to actively redirect that and say like, hey, here's some people you actually should know about and some activists you should care about. Right. In, uh, in Tammy's uh, op-ed for the New York Times, she even, she names Taisha Miller and Rakia Boyd as two women's stories who, two women who were killed by police officers and their stories. And these are the women that we should be talking about instead of Dolezal. And that's the last time we're going to say her name <laughs> on our show. <laughs> in additional terrible news this week, uh, there was a terrorist attack in Charleston, South Carolina, uh, where nine people were killed in a church. Um, how do we even start to talk about this, Amy? How do we even try and make sense of what happened? Oh, I mean, ugh, we can't make sense of tragedies like this. Um, I think the only thing that we can do now in the wake of it is to think about, I don't want to say like how do we prevent these things, but to talk about like how these things happen. And then also talk about um, how when these events happen, what kind of coverage it gets in mainstream media. Because that's really important. Because um, when this happened, I learned about it on Twitter. I didn't see it. It, it didn't like, wasn't breaking news on national television channels. Um, it was something I just learned randomly on Twitter. And then how the whole incident was framed. You know, it was framed as like, oh, just like some isolated shooting at a church. It, it, it should have been framed as a terrorist, as a domestic terrorist attack, but it wasn't fr from the get-go. Um, I think that's how we can like learn from things like this and to think about how, what it means for mainstream culture when we talk about incidences in this way. Yeah, I think it's really important to see this as not just an isolated incident by one guy, but part of a national pattern and history of white supremacy and racist terrorism. You know, when I was reading about this on Friday, the first, the words that came to mind were a few years ago, I went to go see Angela Davis speak. And her talk was about how, when we think about history in America, and we talk about the civil rights movement and sort of the struggles of black people against um, Jim, Jim Crow era laws and racism, as well as like all the way through the 60s and 70s, that we don't frame it as a struggle against terrorism, but that that the white actions against black communities across the country involved a lot of terrorism, involved uh, burning of black churches, involved shooting out the windows of the homes of black leaders, involved executing people who were politically active who were black. Um, to instill terror in the community. And that, you know, when we teach this, when we teach about civil rights in school, we don't talk about it as being sort of a history of white racist terrorism. And that's what, that's what it is. I really can't think of, of a different way that could be more accurate to frame it. I think that the reason why we are taught this in school and the reason why, um, the terrorist in Charleston is not being framed in that way and how they're talking about him as like this um, this lone quote lone wolf uh, white supremacist who belongs to some fringe group um, is because we don't want to admit 
you know, as a country that white supremacy is in everything. So if we can like silo him and his actions or like the actions of these people in history into like these fringe groups of like white supremacists, then we don't have to talk about how white supremacy is in our everyday lives and affects like it's from uh, policies and legislation that gets passed to uh, systemic and structural racism in, you know, public sector. If, if we talk about this guy in this way where it's like he's like this weirdo who you know was wearing um uh pro-apartheid patches on his jacket um then we can just sort of like place the white supremacy on him and not talk about how um the institution of white supremacy is is in, in our everyday lives and i think that as feminists we have to recognize this and we have to recognize that you know everything that happens and the way that the news is covered in america is colored by white supremacy. We have to recognize that and we have to say it and like not be ashamed to, or, you know, if, not ashamed, but like it can feel uncomfortable to talk about that. But if we don't name it, then it just becomes normalized because white supremacy, like white supremacy is a normal thing in America. And I don't think that like on a daily basis that we recognize it or uh, that we call it out. Um, I was reading my Twitter feed and um, there was a user, his name is at Atwanga. His name is Musa Atwanga, and I don't know him. I just, it just was a retweet. And um, he tweeted um, this quote, like, was the shooter acting alone? And the answer was, no, he had colonial, colonial history behind him. And that, like, that really resonated with me because, you know, like, yes, this guy did this on his own in this one situation at this church. Um, but then we have to think about, you know, we have really racist and white supremacist laws on the book where we target, like, people of color. You know, like the stop and frisk law that was in New York City or other laws that like systemically keep um, communities of color um, impoverished or without access to things that can help them lift them out of poverty. Right. It's like convenient to think of him as a freak instead of as a product of a culture. This is part of a history that's been going on for a long time. I, I appreciated the way that The Atlantic covered this. Their headline said, they had a headline about this that said, thugs and terrorists have attacked black churches for generations. And that's so, so significant, I think, to take those words thugs and terrorists and use it for somebody who's a white person perpetuating violence because those are usually used against people of color. And one of the most frustrating aspects about the coverage of what happened in Charleston is that um, because of the way they talked about the killer and it just made it... and and because of the lack of coverage and the lack of like urgency and agency in the coverage, it just felt like this just happened to th this group of people and um, it isn't like a real national problem. Right. Like it's not a, like sometimes when there's, when there's terrorist attacks that are, that everybody calls terrorist attacks, it's seen as like, this is a, this is a national time of mourning. Yes. And oh my gosh, there was that coverage from Fox News where they said that like, oh, maybe this was an attack on faith to like take it away from uh, the race aspect which just made me want to like lunge at my computer monitor. And for the record, fuck Fox News, Fox News for even doing that. I mean, they know what they're doing and it's just so disingenuous. And, and, it, and the most fucked up part about that is that they have a huge reach and people actually watch them and listen to them and agree with what they're saying. I think that my next thing I should do is to try to get a job at Fox News and just like, <laughs> work from the inside yes i want to change my name and identity i'm okay i know we said be, i know an infiltrator i know we said we're not going to say Rachel dolezal's name again but uh if if i could but that's the thing like as a 
as an Asian person, I cannot be a white person, right? So I couldn't like sh shape shift and like infiltrate Fox News. But if I could, I would. I guess it's on me then. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> no, <Sarah. laughs> I guess my yeah, my next job is to infiltrate Fox News. And then what? What? <sighs> what? What should I do? You have to become Robert Murdoch. I think that's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, it's been good working with you, Amy. Cool. I'll give you a call when I'm the president of Fox News <laughs> and I'm about to turn this ship around. Okay. So it's the end of the show. And on the end of the show, we talk about one thing we heard, one thing we saw, and one thing we read this week. Um, do you want to start, Amy, with one thing yes. you... Okay, so I just started the new season of Orange is the New Black. I'm about a third of the way through, uh, which is not normal for me because I actually like to stretch it out, but I just got busy and started binge watching. I got busy binge watching. Um, you know, I, I watched the first two seasons and I've always enjoyed it. And then at the beginning of the season, I think after all this heaviness of um, all the awful news that was coming out, I was just like, do I really want to watch a show about women in prison, uh, especially like there are so many women of color in prison. I was like bummed on myself about it. Like, do I really want to watch like these women that are, you know, pawns in like the prison industrial complex? Like, do I? And then I watched it and I said, yes, I do. <laughs> um, this so season, it's good. The season's good. Yeah, it's been great. And, um, and, and you know, there's really no other place where I, I would see so many women of color and like and queer women being just treated as like regular old you know stories not like not as tokens or uh random side stories but like these women and their stories are being centered and they're three-dimensional characters and and you know it's not just a show about women in prison i was like watching and i was like trying to figure out what the show is about and it's, it's about how women survive not just in prison but just in life because it they go back into having showing their backstories and a lot of times like they framed and the narratives that the women had landed, landed in jail is, is like they were doing something in terms of survival or some aspect of their survival in terms of their identity or socioeconomic or raising their family um and it's just been so good and and they've given um Uzo Aduba's character, um, Suzanne Crazy Eyes Warren. She's getting like a whole new storyline. I'm, I'm trying not to like do any spoiler alerts or spoilers. Um, and then also there's the the character Chang, who's played by Laurie Tan Chin. She's the the Asian woman, the older Asian woman who works in the commissary. She actually gets her backstory told. Oh yeah, she yes. had only like a couple lines. Yes, like minimal, like yeah. totally side character, but she finally got her her side story told, and she's so hilarious. And you know, and there's really nowhere else where you can watch like a serial television show where you will see a queer woman who just had got done having sex. And then you see her with a strap on on. Okay, <laughs> actually, that did happen in Sense Eight, the new oh, Netflix yeah, show Sense Eight. Yeah, though it is, it's kind of like feels a little over the top in my opinion. In the very first episode of Sense Eight, which is the new Netflix show, it's by the Wachowskis, um, and there's this like steamy sex scene, and then the queer woman throws this rainbow-colored strap on that's like covered in body fluid onto the floor and it's kind of like yeah we did that <laughs> you know? it feels a little bit like like oh you didn't think we'd go there we went there <laughs> yeah I mean, it was like it was it was like jarring but not in a terrible way but like oh fuck yeah kind of way when so this I saw season this on netflix there's two strap-ons on <laughs> on screen yeah who who does think it netflix is, is gonna be uh the pioneer in like queer representation with strap-ons great 
Um, let's see. You also read a good book this week, right? Yeah, so I've been reading um, Daisy Hernandez's memoir, A Cup of Water Under My Bed. And Daisy Hernandez is um, Cuban, Colombian, American. Um, her parents are both immigrants. And it's just a story about, I'm not, I haven't finished it yet because uh, it's due back at the library, so I have to return it. Oh no, that's the worst. <laughs> yeah, the dreaded, I'm not done, but it's on hold, so I have to return it. See, so you're like a good library patron. <laughs> I do I would just keep it and like, <laughs> sorry, other person, you're going to wait a week. Well, if I wasn't going out of town for a couple of weeks, I probably would, but my overdue fee would get out of control. But uh, so this, this memoir is about her growing up in uh, New York City, and, um, and it's just so beautifully written. Literally every other page, Daisy Hernandez is able to like write a turn of phrase that is just so heartbreaking and beautiful and encapsulate exactly how you want to say something in a poetic way, but in prose. Um, and it's about her experience growing up as as the older daughter. I think she has a, sis- a younger sister and her parents and and um, and the experiences of, you know, straddling that line of trying to be uh, a good daughter, but also trying to be herself and straddling two different cultures and what that meant. And then I, I definitely recommend it for anybody who wants to read about like uh, experience of a child of immigrants. It's, it's, it's called A Cup of Water Under My Bed. Yes. And it came out last year. And um, also last October, one of our former interns, Ari, she interviewed Daisy Hernandez. And it's on our website. Yeah, we ran the interview on the website. I still haven't read the book, though. It sounded really it's good. Really, it's really, be- it's just beautiful. Okay, um, so to, to wrap up the show, we're going to play one thing we heard this week. And this week, I found out about Cambodian surf rock. Yes. A genre I never knew about before until um, we ran a review of this film called Don't Think I've Forgotten. The um, It's about the history of Cambodian rock and roll, which uh, in Cambodia, there was lots of people playing rock and roll in the 1950s and 60s until the 70s when a lot of the musicians were horribly repressed uh, by Pol Pot, who came into power. And so this film captures sort of the sounds of Cambodian rock and roll. And it's just amazing. I haven't heard anything like it. And I love it. And we have a mixtape of Cambodian rock and roll that's on our website right now. If you go look it up. Um, I've been listening to it nonstop. And I want to play this song by a band whose name I am going to be horrible at pronouncing. But it's Baksai Cham Krong. And it's in the movie Don't Think I've Forgotten. Thanks for listening to the show. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Backtalk. This podcast is hosted by Sarah Merck and Amy Lamb from Bitch Media. The show is produced by Alex Ward. Bitch Media is a reader and listener-supported feminist nonprofit. If you want to support the show and our work, please head over to bitchmedia.org and donate. This episode of Backtalk is brought to you by longtime Bitch Media sponsor Gladrags, who bring you all the essentials for a safe, sustainable period. Learn about cloth pads and menstrual cups when you sign up for their newsletter at gladrags.com and be entered to win a mini cloth pad starter set. Make sure you tell them Backtalk sent you. Mm-hmm.